Welcome to the Rumpus Room. Hey everybody, how's it going out there? It's the boys from the Midwest back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room and let's hit them with the takeaway message of the day. In negotiating, the I found the best way to start is on the things that you agree on. And it's also a good thing if you're trying to convince somebody or try to try to show somebody your side of the story. It always works better if you start on the things you agree on. So, you know, let's just say you're trying to get a job, but you want a higher salary. You know, it can be like, you know what I really like? I, I think this is, <clears throat> this is the right company for me. I feel really comfortable. I feel like you and I are going to work well together. Um, you know, you just kind of start with those things and then you can transition into, you know, what I think I need to do a better job of this is this, you know, I need more, more money. You know, maybe there's some other ways we can work on it with benefits, but I think that's always the best way is to, uh, you know, align somebody with, uh, what you agree on. Yeah. Um, absolutely a great way to start. Uh, I am doing a lot of negotiating internally. Most of my, I don't do a whole lot of external negotiation. Well, I mean, there's a fair amount of kind of pseudo external negotiation in my role, but, uh, you are probably more in kind of that traditional sales role. Uh, where there's more separation between you and the customer as opposed to the sales role that I usually play, which is there we're on the same team and I need to sell people a strategic direction, an idea, a, you know, something that makes people want to collaborate with, you know, whatever I'm pushing, which, um, can be easier and can be significantly harder, uh, mm -hmm. depending on the environment that you work in. And, um, uh, speaking of the, the institution I work for, there's been some major cuts uh, at the leadership and the manager level. And um, one thing, because they, it's a health system, they were in some hard times during uh, COVID and had to make some staffing uh, rollbacks. Uh, and one thing, I've been very impressed with the leadership's grace throughout this process. There are some really high profile folks who were laid off and... Um, they were all just extremely graceful. And um, I, I didn't really even catch like a tinge of bitterness from anybody, even people who were like 15 year uh, employ long employees. And that just really impressed me. Um, and maybe I wasn't in the circles close enough to hear the unabashed truth. But um, publicly, at least there was certainly a, a kind of a respectful and uh, peaceful transition uh, approach to a lot of the people that uh, were unfortunately let go. Did you get any reads on how they did it or how that? Uh... Yeah. Um, like why did it go so well, basically? I don't know why it went so well. Um, one of the things I think went well was a couple of the folks were very close to retirement. So I think it was one of those things where they got healthy packages to leave where they were already, you know, half of their foot was out of the door mm. sort of thing. Yeah. And then this was just the impetus to be like, well, I can sweeten the deal um, and do it a little bit earlier. So I think there was some of that going on. Uh, I think there was just a general um, desire to 
try something new in certain capacities. I, like certain leaders who I know are those types of people who are um, just moving companies frequently. Like they thrive in transition. I would, I want, I would, I don't think they ever stop networking. You know, those type of people are like. Mm -hmm. okay with being at a place for a couple of years and then trying something new and so i think there was a flavor of that um and then uh i guess the other kind of long-term people i i think there was a a uh a a freedom that was realized because we had been in such a challenging kind of operating environment for such for such a long time i think it was a a bit of a, a golden parachute to get out of a working situation that was just not supportive to one's mental health and kind of like perspective on life. I think it would have just been a slog uh, for a couple people to stay in the in the roles that they had. And strategically, there's some things going on to make more sense that I don't need to comment on. But um, yeah, it was just really graceful. Uh, and I have seen, you know, some transition. I've never really seen, I guess, the ugly side of it. Um, the ugly side of those things is usually beforehand uh, when things are not working out and uh, people around you know it and uh, significant changes have to be made. That's that's the really ugly part. Sometimes that finality or, or this the certainty of not needing to continue floundering is, uh, is actually a welcomed... Um, kind of message for for certain people in certain roles that where there's a lot of turmoil which I was exposed to so I don't know it was uh it was fascinating overall it was also like the messages came down and these people got two weeks notice so we're talking about leaders that were like driving conversations and two weeks later they're gone it was really quick hmm. wow um, yeah you know. some of that stuff happens and you freak out before, you know, like while it's happening. And then once it happens, you get surprisingly comfortable very quickly with, you know, everybody picks things up. And, you know, in my experience with some of the, I don't say turnaround work, but hiring and firing, there's a definite sense of fear that these people, you know, like everything's just going to be dropped and things are not going to go anywhere. And it, surprisingly does pretty well at the afterwards so it's a it's a it's a necessary evil i think of running a successful business is you know the most the high the most expensive part of a business is the employee so managing that part is critical to surviving a lot of conversations tough work totally the uh um i always whenever i had you know, I'm working with somebody who's in a startup and they're thinking about that first hire large organizations. You can get plenty of bloat and, you know, still work with it. Uh, small organizations, there is no room for anybody who doesn't add value. Uh, and so that's, you know, hiring and firing is just so much, it's important at every level, but, uh, I would say, you know, when you're the most important hire you'll ever make is probably your first hire. Yep. Oh yeah. And you know, I'm in the middle of that right now in terms of growing and adding staff, because the more you bring people in, the more layers you add, the more complexity you have to your team. So just like you said, making sure it's the right fit, 
And I'm a proponent of not, you know, hiring a, I'd say like lower mid-level, you know, like somebody that really adds a lot of value and just kind of sticks their nose down and does things as opposed to bringing in leaders at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, it really depends too on the situation, you know. Is that view shared by your investors? Yes. That's great. Yeah. Um, it You know, and the conversation we had is it's really all based on money. <laughs> so let's just say you go out and get $50 million. Well, your job is not going to be to hire that level. You're going to need another layer to do that. But let's just say you're trying to grow a company from, you know, five clients to 10 clients, that's going to be more of the work you're going to need to do is like what needs to be done. So it's just a matter of where you, what problems are you trying to solve in the next, you know, six to six months to a year. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been the conversation we've been having is where, you know, you've got this, you've got a tool, which is capital and how do you allocate it appropriately to solve your problems and ultimately grow. And so I think one of the conversations we've been having is just capital, you know, what is the, are we moving too slow or moving too fast? You know, those types of things are very, very important to building the right product and growing too fast is a problem. Going too slow is a problem. Do you have an inclination as to which side you may be on, if any? Well, right now we've been uh, not raising capital for the purpose of growing via revenue. And we have a couple, we're fortunate we have a couple of large partners who we have been kicking pilots off of with some, you know, revenue upside. So that gives us the ability to not have to let's just say, you know, give up ownership stake, bring yeah. alternate, you know, bring opinions in that. Makes well, or staff sense. the scaling yourself. Exactly. Because right? a lot of errors are made in companies at the beginning with overstaffing and growing, you know, that this whole thing of product market fit. So making sure that you have something that people will buy for a price that they'll buy. Uh, I'm reading a really, really interesting book that talks about you need to figure out the price of what you are offering before anything else. Because if you don't understand what people will pay for the service, you just don't have a business model. And so a lot, it talks a lot about, a lot of the errors are made in these freemium companies, free to start. And then they'll mm -hmm. charge you later because they don't know, A, they spend a ton of money on building the product. So they don't know like, hey, this is to be a profitable enterprise. We need to stay here. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of different ways to run successful businesses. And so that's something we're navigating. And, uh, you know, that's been a, on the front of my mind for the last couple of weeks just how to navigate this because you can go out and raise money and you there's a risk to doing that and there's a risk to not raising money you know moving slower and mm -hmm. not, you know and other people with more money beating you to the punch mm -hmm. so yeah. it's just a 
interesting balance. And, you know, when you're talking about companies that are, you know, they've been around for hundreds of years, they have a product like a health system, their challenges are different in terms of how do we keep the ship running, you know, add some innovation, you know, hiring and firing is a big part of what they, the, the you know, the problems in the next six months they need to solve. Yeah, the established business model versus the, uh, or, you know, the established organization versus the budding organization, just mm -hmm. such a different, it's a different skill set too to be able to function well in either setting. Uh, I've been typically involved in low um, volume or low number of employees uh, groups prior to my most recent role. And uh, it's just a different bag of tricks, man. It does not take that long to figure it out. I'll be honest. I feel like it took me about uh, three or four months to kind of like understand the pace at which the organization worked. Um, smaller organizations, you know, you'll do, you'll work on something or, and tell me if this is true, but you'll spend a couple of days doing something and um, you may not be deploying that information for like quite some time. Right. As At far a bigger as like one or a smaller one? Smaller one. Um, what I would typically find is like the length of time in which I would deploy information was longer as far as like me working on something, coming to conclusions, dedicated time and energy, and then incubation versus like deployment that the incubation time was longer i feel like um because i feel like the pace of movement in the larger organizations is so much longer or so much shorter uh like the the organizations move faster but they only move faster in very small steps because you have so many different people all sort of taking these little hacks at it as opposed to like how i used to work is like I get out a shovel and I dig a trench for a while. And then I like tell people, Hey, I dug a trench over here. It's starting to fill with water. What should we do about it? Uh, and here it's like, I'm, you know, instead of digging a trench very far, what I'm trying to do is like, well, first of all, get other people to dig the trench for me. Advocate and then, for the trench being digging. Being yeah. digging. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, um, also like, the strategy and the plans like i'll i'll be very offhandedly doing something and um it'll it'll come up that like oh we actually really need that information today for our next meeting that's going to go all the way up the chain in this way and so there's this weird like um cycling of information up and down the chain of command and that's the pace of change which is very different when you're in a flat organization you don't have to like you know prepare your findings to move up and down all of the time you're, you're just you know kind of continuing to bang on the level that you have awareness of and that you're playing on and with the people that you're engaging with right as opposed to needing to like oh this is you know we got to send it up the chain and back down and then we'll take a tiny step forward because now everybody up the chain and back has a little bit of an awareness so we're all going to take sort of a half step in this direction or whatever just a different thing. I don't know if you've, I mean, you're, you've obviously worked in large companies and tell me if I'm right about, you know, kind of how you operate today as far as when you're making progress. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I think we have the inverse of experience where you were small than large and I was large than small. 
And so what I know from like my current small business experience is it's very action oriented where somebody comes to me with an idea. I always am like, well, just go prove it and tell me, you know, if it's working or not, you know, we need to, you need to keep trying things and, you know, are they moving the, are they moving the value of the product forward? Are people using it? Are they clicking on it? So what we've been doing is trying to run, we'll call it like not experiments, but tests very inexpensively. Let me guess you're staying away from the word pilot. Well, we, we've say, we say pilot in terms of a contractual agreement sure. um, because it actually at larger companies, it does allow you to, that's one of the words that I've used to get them. Oh, yeah, to, that's the foot in the door. That's the foot in the door. And also the, I don't want to say excuse for innovation, but the like hands up, this isn't like a fully developed product. Let's be patient type thing. And so you get people to, approach it a little differently in terms of like the support staff of like, Hey, we're trying something new. Like we had a really awesome conversation this week, uh, between a really large company that we're partnering with and a, and a customer of theirs that we're working on them. Customer said, this isn't working. Something's going wrong. So we all got on the phone and the large organization was like, you know what? We're, we're going to, let's change the process up. We're just, we're kind of experimenting with what works and what doesn't. We appreciate your support. And they handled it extremely well. So I was just really proud to be working with this organization because they, they spoke what, you know, we kind of got in and said, look at, this is not clearly defined, but if we want to be an organ, if we want to lead in this category in the future, we have to take steps now and that sometimes means not hitting a home run. You know, maybe we had a, mm -hmm. have a base hit and we get on base, maybe somebody gets an out, you know? So maybe somebody, we not necessarily make a mistake, but maybe we need to have a call with the customer who's like, what the heck, this isn't working how I thought it was. Mm -hmm. But then the customer did a really nice job of saying, look at here's what we want. And so we were able to figure out how to do that process and we're kicking it off next week, which is very exciting for me, but you know, it didn't require me, you know, it didn't require a lot of up and down movement to make this change. It was really like, uh, okay, this is where we need to go. Let's make a change and let's do it. Whereas my previous experience in a large organization, it's like, all right, I'll take your feedback. Let's write it down. Let's figure out what we can do. We're going to have to go talk to leadership superiors about making this change. Does it fit into our vision? You know, and there's just, there was another layer, which at times is really beneficial because there are some, I don't want to say bad, like dumb or bad ideas, but they just won't contribute very well. Um, those decisions are essentially going through my head right now on, is this product going to be used by everybody or is this just a one-off? So, you know, there's more complexity to decision-making, but I think at a smaller organization and when we're hiring a big thing we want is like action oriented people. Um, and so some people are more action oriented, probably will do a better job in a smaller company, but if people that are really good at that influence up and down and good at talking about issues and getting people on board and building consensus, I think those are more of a large company 
skill set. Um, yeah, and something I I'm learning how to do uh, better <laughs> because my nature is to typically start hacking away. Um, yeah, you're and, uh, give me the axe and I'll start chopping type. Um, pretty much. Uh, I, I was actually chatting with a, 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 a an acquaintance of mine who. Um, dissatisfied with his job. He's probably about 34 years old. Um, and, uh, I, I experienced, you know, some frustration in my previous consulting roles. I was not growing as a leader and, you know, doing what I wanted to. So I started looking for other gigs and, um, ended up landing this job that I currently am working. And I, I probably sent out 50 to 60 resumes, um, or filled out 50 to 60 applications rather. Um, and he, you know, I've, I've heard about this gentleman's dissatisfaction with his job for probably, I don't know, a long time, you know, mm -hmm. uh, six months or so. And then I finally just asked him point blank. I was like, how many jobs did you apply to? And he's like, I don't know, probably like four or five. And I was like, oh, okay. I probably applied to 60 and I got a job. <laughs> and he was just like, really? You applied to 60? Damn. I was like, yeah. That's what it takes, dude. What, the, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you can't just, you can't just like over, turn over a few stones. You got to be out in the field. Absolutely. You know, turning over everything that you can possibly find within your purview. Uh, and, um, my wife was talking about how she thinks that people who live a comfortable life don't realize the amount of energy and effort that it takes to do things. And yes, he's had a life where his, his mother comes over and does his cleaning and laundry, that sort of thing, which, um, I'll be honest. My mom was here earlier this week, actually helping with some cleaning because well, you have a take, child. yeah, she was going to take my son and, uh, you know, go for a walk or whatever and get him out of our hair for a bit. But uh, he was sleeping, so she was helping out around the house. So, you know, here I am uh, with my hand on the stove talking about how hot it is. Uh, and uh, but this guy, you know, he he certainly does, you know, not like kind of under. He's had a more sh sheltered life. And one thing I think our parents were really big on is is advocating for the amount of effort that it takes to get a return. And one thing I often see on social media is like a lot of these people talking about how hard you have to work to get things. And to a certain level, it seems a bit disingenuous considering they're usually trying to sell you a product by saying we're they're always sending you, selling you a product. <laughs> yeah. It's like Gary V like, why don't you pay me to, to teach tell you work hard? Yeah. To tell you that you're not working hard enough. And then, you know, whatever. Um, so well, we can pick on him all day. <laughs> he's an easy example, but there's been an entire industry of people who like, you know, kind of set have followed in his footsteps as far as like, you know, you have to work hard and then build a business platform off of the idea of working hard and then but making money off of telling people that they need to work hard. And maybe they do indeed work hard, but they, you work know, it's, hard it's to a, get you to sign up for their program for sure. And it's, uh, and, and maybe they really do have a great methodology, but it's kind of hilarious to like make money off of people's desire to make money. Well, Charlie Munger has a really good example of that. He says, you know, I, I, cause somebody asked him about this at a board meeting, one of those, you know, uh, famous 
Berkshire board meetings. And he said, um, usually like people that are making all the money, just continue to make money and not teach people how to do it. You know, so they're, their, their goals aren't to like stop what they're doing and teach everybody how to make money in the moment. So mm -hmm. I just be really cautious about those people. Cause you know, he's hanging out with people that have a lot of skills and know how to make money. And he just said, that's not the people that I hang out with that are in the business of making a lot of money and do a very good job of it. Aren't, you know, teaching people how to make more money. So no, they're not doing I mean, weekend seminars. Yeah. He's like, I, you know, even Tony Robbins, it's like, you no, know, Tony makes money by you showing up at a seminar, not he's not out in the world, you know, his, he's not, you know, creating businesses and doing that. I mean, he is creating a business, but that business is sure. And he's, do. you know, pivoted, obviously, he's probably an investor and, you know, very much diversified as far as but I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, and it's, uh, I think that 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 really helps me be less frustrated by the um, the insanity that is uh, the propagation of, I mean, well, you know, with the, the advent of the internet, obviously now all of the sudden the whole world, you can sell to the whole world, anything yep. you want all the time. Yep. Uh, and so messaging is becoming increasingly important. And uh, you know, you've got these people obviously just blasting out their messages on the platforms to say, buy my thing. Uh, it's a crowded space. It really is. But um, it's also a new era, just as far as uh, if you thought consumerism was bad before each person had the ability to sell their own product. Just wait 20 years. I mean, shoot, like when you think about the whole sort of influencer thing, people wanting to be influencers, get products. Imagine when like 10% of your high school graduating class is like pushing a new nutritional shake. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, this helps me get in weight, in shape. Yeah, also you're 17 years old and you play soccer. You're <laughs> probably not gonna be looking like, you know, somebody who works at nine to five eats mcdonald's breakfast on the way into the office like <laughs> well in a good way that i've always found is like if there's like a quick fix it's just not not gonna work and you know talking about the diet kind of there's so many diet fads and one of the i was listening to a guy on a podcast who was a weight lifter and he said you know one of the things about diets that I've realized is it really does go back to counting calories. And he's like, a lot of those diets are pretty restrictive. So you actually, you know, you just can't eat whatever's in front of you. So you make a choice to eat less. So he's like, that's some of the effect of these diets. And, you know, this diets are an easy one that people really start to push on other people. You know, it's like, that's an easy one to hammer down. <laughs> Well, you've seen, I, I would admit, have you seen the, uh, you know, the nutrition teacher who goes on a all fast food diet and loses weight? No. Oh man. There, there's a bunch of examples of nutritional teachers who are like, look, I am going to lose 20 pounds or whatever. And I'm only going to eat diet, you know, Mountain Dew Doritos and, um, fast food. But since they operate in a caloric deficit, you know, they're not ever, they're actually losing weight because 
the only way to lose weight is to be in a caloric deficit. Like, I don't know why yeah. this message is something that doesn't. And like, yeah, if you only eat McDonald's and Doritos, your energy levels levels are probably going to be pretty low. So you're probably not going to have a lot of enthusiasm to go burn calories. But if you're just in a caloric deficit, you will lose weight. Mm -hmm. there's, yeah. there's no way around it. Like, no, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I think we're so far behind in terms of nutrition, nutritional understanding that that's, I think one of the largest things with health, my prediction is in the future, it's going to be, you know, food is going to be one of the big, big factors is like, how do we, what do we eat? When do we eat it is going to be such a large thing. Um, it's just going to well, take over. Yeah. As far as a differentiator, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it already is. Um, and the the advent of like, you know, mass produced stuff is what's going to be the difference is, you know, shopping the inside versus the outside that of the grocery store, that sort of thing. But um, yeah. yeah, I completely agree. I mean, nutritional deficiency has emerged as the number one indicator of whether or not COVID is going to have a negative impact on you. If you're vitamin D deficient, that's the, I believe the biggest indicator of whether or not you'll end up in an ICU bed. Wasn't weight one of them too? Weight is, um, but if you're, uh, but vitamin D deficiency is like super high up there for yeah, it's like 90% of people that end who are up in an ICU. Day. Yeah. I don't know, man. Um, I think it was, oh, so in other COVID related news, obviously the, uh, the, the young man's uh, messiah joe rogan has uh come down with covid he took a horse dewormer invermectin he threw the book at it and uh, you know whatever like i don't really care what joe rogan does with his time and energy i think he's a fascinating case study because he's got all this access to information he has tons of access to funds he's obviously very very healthy very plugged into you know the way to um, live your life in a, in that, in that, you know, something that's fulfilling. Like he's a, he's a guy who I think has grabbed life by the horns. And, um, that's why I think so many young men gravitate towards him is because he's really made his vision. Yeah. Reality. Yep. And, um, I don't know if this is the case with just COVID, but I've, my observation is this, uh, you've got all of these, Christian anti-vaxxer and maybe this is just something that our media that our media loves to pick up on so we hear about it more often but you have these Christian anti-vaxxers or you know radio right-leaning radio hosts who are all not about it end up getting covid uh, unfortunately die or whatever and then it's a huge news story blowing up about how these anti-vaxxers died and now they're you know whatever um, and when COVID was first kicking off, I had this extreme desire to send, um, my buddies. It was like the day that the U the U S I think it was the day the NBA kind of like shut things down and everybody was kind of like, okay, what's happening here? Um, and I was going to send, uh, Requiem, the, uh, Mozart, um, symphony, which is, you know, kind of essentially about like the end of the world, basically. And I really resisted the urge because I was like, man, this would be funny, but 
I'm also a little bit afraid that I would hit this on the nose and I would have ramifications that would be unbeknownst to me at this point. And so I didn't send it. COVID continues. Um, we get all the way to March uh, and I'm up at a cabin with some friends. I, you know, everybody was making jokes about, oh yeah, if Adam gets COVID, he's going to have no symptoms because whatever. Uh, and I, I'll, perhaps I'll, I'll admit I was getting more laissez-faire about me getting COVID because, you know, we had been through it for a while or whatever it would be. And uh, so, um, you know, it was already a year and a half or a year and two months into the thing. And uh, I then ended up getting COVID that weekend. Sure, I didn't have any symptoms, whatever. Um, but I, I don't, I find this trend to be that when people say things, the magic <laughs> is gone. Yeah. Joe Rogan is the exact same way. He had this event that he went to where a bunch of people got COVID. And then he publicly said on his podcast, like, oh, yeah, but I take all these vitamins. I do this and that. And that's why I didn't get it. And then, like, pretty much the next weekend, he got it. And it's so funny about how when we put out these markers into the world, they oftentimes just blow up in our face. Oh, I would. So that is something that has been, I think, living in the base of my skull for a really long time. So you want to withhold saying certain things. Um, because I think sometimes when you put out in the world, it, it kicks you right back. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, when you when we podcast, I want to make sure that I don't overspeak. And I think you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I completely agree with what you're saying that sometimes when you let these thoughts out into the universe, the, the exact opposite happens, <laughs> like you get COVID. Um, it's just a very interesting example. And I've been trying to protect myself and I've had that hesitance too. And there's been times when I've let it out and I've had that experience. I'm trying to think of an example, but that COVID is a very good example but that's something that I have, I too feel, well, you know, when I'm like talking to other people, you know, like even like saying a joke about something, you know, like when you're either teasing somebody or whatever, you got to be careful <laughs> or I'm trying to be more careful at least. Completely agree. Um, I don't know how to, uh, I don't know how to put it any other way um, about you know, keeping those things close to you, uh, I've heard sometimes makes them stronger. Like if you don't tell anybody what you're trying to do, I've also heard the opposite, which is, you know, you should put it out into the world and whatever and make it a thing. I, I don't know. Um, particularly with COVID, I've seen this sort of inverse effect, I think, uh, become more real. And perhaps it's a response to the idea that now we have this public platform and so our, our thoughts and, uh, um, you know, things can be memorialized so much easier that the consequences of our, of our words are becoming much more significant. Um, yeah, no, I would agree. And I think you and I talk a lot about when we podcast, making sure we're thoughtful about what we say, um, 
because it you you've as you've seen with the Jeopardy uh, new Jeopardy guy, uh, you know whatever you say in the world can come back and and haunt you or come back and and uh, catch up with you. And I think a lot of things true too is like we we change our opinions. You know, I think you and I, we, we've changed our viewpoints on a lot of things where before we thought one thing and now we think another thing. And, you know, I think a, a lot of people that I talk to change their opinions. Um, and that's a good thing to do. You know, it's good to, to analyze what we think about. So I think sometimes that hesitance to say what's on your mind, you know, may be an indication that some things may change in the future. Yeah. Um, that's always a gut check that I make before I send an email. It's like, will I be, um, do, am I hesitating at all sending this? Do I have any hesitation whatsoever? And if I do, I try and not send it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, just for the group, I think this is a great thing to keep in mind. Don't ever send any email or a text message for that matter or uh, a social media post that you wouldn't be comfortable having being read back to you in a court of law. <laughs> I think we've said that a number of times and it, it bears another exam. Like it's very important. And I, I've pro I told the story about me experiencing that, you know, on an actual legal level, reading emails when I was very young. So I got that experience and it is very, it's tough. So I think it's a, it's a great barometer. And one of the things that's worked for me is putting some time in between my response and mm -hmm. my thought. So I'll type the email out and I can go do something else and come back and send it. And oftentimes I, that is a benefit. That's very, a big benefit for me in terms mm -hmm. of sending the email. Cause a lot of times it doesn't need to be communicated in that exact moment. I completely agree. And so that's, uh, that's important. It is. Uh, well, that's all we got for you today, folks. Tune in next week and we'll be back kicking here in the rumpus room.